Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Fabian Schaum, co-founder and CIO at 360X, the digital assets marketplace backed by Deutsche Börse and Commerzbank. The business tokenizes rights in expert, verified and high quality art, music and real estate assets. Fabian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dominic. Great to be here. Now, this project first came to light in my life anyway, back in April 2021. Uh, It's now towards the end of 2022. What's the status of the project today? Where have you got to? Um, yeah, what we've we've achieved quite a lot of things since our incorporation in April 2021. So um, we are now a regulated, above and regulated uh, marketplace. We've got three licenses, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later on what we can do. Um, we've done a couple of transactions. We've incubated firms in music, in real estate and in art, and we've done transactions across them. Um, and there's quite a lot more things uh, to come as well. So I'm happy to share a little bit more about what's exactly going to happen. You've done transactions. Which of those transactions would you name as your flagship transaction? Yeah. So um, one of the thing, one of the transactions that I find most interesting and where we've been receiving the most interest from our customers. Um, was actually related to music rights, um, an asset class which is um, quite trendy at the moment uh, with the likes of KKR and Goldman Sachs um, buying into music rights catalogs uh, for various different reasons. Um, But it's typically not something that you could find in alternative investor portfolios just yet. Um, And we've just recently done one. There was also some press releases for anyone that wants to read into it on a more detailed level um, where we took royalty rights um, that come out of music author rights um, and we tokenized them and could um, sort of like sell fractions of that cash flow coming out of the music rights that you could collect via streaming platforms and um, and anywhere where a, a specific song is played in Germany. And the interesting bit is also, uh, and that's also kind of like what sets us apart from other platforms is that that particular revenue stream is not calculated and distributed by the artist directly or by us, which would always hold a a specific level of conflict of interest. Um, But it was actually counted by GEMA, which is the collecting society in Germany, uh, which is actually part of the government. So it's a government mandated collecting society that does that. And so investors could get um, a share of that cash flow directly from the source. Um, which we thought a lot of investors were really keen on having. And we are very much looking forward to, you know, creating more exposure and more opportunities in that space. Mm-hmm. So you're in effect capitalizing or putting a value on uh, unusual alternative income streams. Uh, now, you've just talked a bit about, about music rights. Um, the other asset classes you've chosen, fine art and real estate, what was it about these asset classes which distinguished them from all the other alternative assets you could have chosen? Yeah. So um, initially, when we had the idea of 360X, we were looking, obviously, at many kinds of different projects uh, that have been in existence for some time. Um and also all of the other asset classes that sort of like float around there. And uh, typically you can see platforms um, that, you know, might specialize on like luxury watches and uh, or, or jewelry. 
Um, you would also have platforms focusing on cars, like sports cars um, and collectibles. Um, and there's also like, depending on, on where you're ex exactly trying to get into and how digital things need to be, you could even go as far as going into gaming or digital fashion. Um, you could also go into even digital land and the likes of that. that a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of talk in, in town on, on these ones as well, which I'm also happy to uh, offer my, my perspective on if that's interesting. Um, but really, we were sort of looking into the assets that already have an existing market infrastructure, um, that have an existing customer demand uh, with very clear sort of like um, angles at which to improve that by using the technology. So we were sort of measuring not, not by market size or by um, whether there's interesting uh, sort of like potential, um, but we were trying to find something where there's concrete demand and concrete problems to be solved. Um, and that's why we chose, um, initially we started out with the art market um, because the art market was something where one of our co-founders, uh, Shirin has spent a lot of time in, um, she's worked at auction houses, gallery, galleries, and she's done she's done the whole art market thing. And um, we saw during COVID, actually, when we first got together, that the art market was very heavily disrupted. So even, even sort of like the actors within the market were not really in a position to participate. And then beyond that, on the investor side, you would always have that scarcity, which is also kind of like what makes the art market potentially the art market. Um, but even among those people that actually really know very well about the inner workings of the art market or what makes art in, uh, an attractive investment or something to collect, they wouldn't have the access to it uh, as much as you would see that in other um, financial instruments. And we thought that would be um, a great point to start. And it also brings together quite a few aspects outside of pure investments. So when you compare us to, let's say, more mainstream asset classes, um, like the ones that are trading publicly on exchanges today, uh, you can see in alternative assets, um, and specifically that can be illustrated very well in art and music, is that you also have a component that I would broadly describe as um, utility, um, engagement, or a level of emotional um, sort of like connection to the asset class, which this technology, uh, the token suits very well um, to add value other than just making it another pure security. Um, so both of these angles, um, the fact that there was a problem to solve and the fact that there was this interesting potential that we could get out of the, the technology in the long term, um, made us pivot into these particular markets. So that was the first sort of like dimension that we looked into in terms of which markets to enter. And then the second one was um, the second one was actually as um, as we were looking into the markets, we saw that with alternative assets um, and within crypto infrastructure, there's still um, I, I would say a lot of you know, lack of credibility or trust in the infrastructure and trust in the process. Um, and that was something that we aimed at 
also resolving for the customer because as much as people may, might want to participate in art and music, uh, so is it important to make sure that the things actually have a, a level of quality and have a level of um, certainty that you're not buying something that doesn't exist. And, and that's why we thought about um, this from a different angle. And um, we chose assets that we can also bring the expertise to the table that with uh, some best industry, uh, um, best in practice industry standards, um, we could provide some transparency on the assets themselves, the underlying assets. That means for an art piece, um, there's provenance, there's certificates of authenticity, there's condition reports, there's valuations, it's stored safely, it's insured, and all of that, that you might, as an investor, might worry about if you owned art in, in real life or did a real trade. Uh, and, and so we gathered experts that are coming from the markets that bring the domain expertise um, and, and, and can really contribute that to, to the product, to the platform. Mm -hmm. uh, so to summarize, um, what makes us choose these asset classes? There's a problem that we can solve. There's demand from the investors. And we can sort of with, um, we can rest um, well with having the domain expertise in-house um, so we can provide the quality that we aim to provide. Um, a lot of other asset classes, we couldn't, or we see it as higher level of difficulty. So we remain to stay a little bit more distance from them and we're just observing them for the time being. Um, I'll come back to that question about the experts, because I think it's a very important point. But before I do, could I um, ask you a little bit about a, a point you raised earlier about, yes, you are looking at things like digital land. Uh, you are, you didn't use the term, but I think you are looking at um, things like NFTs, where there is clearly a, an overlap with, with the art world. Uh, and, you know, you have seen auction houses selling um, uh, board apes and uh, crypto punks and, uh, and so on. But, Am I right to think that you're holding back from getting involved in those sectors because um, of that lack of trust you referred to and that lack of um, verifiable expertise? Are those the sort of, <laughs> there's no infrastructure to make you sure that you're buying something which exists and so on. Is that, are those the constraints which hold you back? So um, I wouldn't necessarily say that we stay away from NFTs altogether. Um, in fact, we do do NFTs. Um, but we tend to sort of like help artists to create them uh, rather than just open the platform for anything that exists out there. So um, we are helping brands, we are helping artists, we're helping individuals enter the space um, and get closer towards understanding what the potential of it is. And we are already doing that. So we've done a couple of drops with like German artists, um, uh, also like several music labels and and and. It's the reason why we're not, um, if the uh, the audience understands, so we are we are not aiming to be an open sea kind of platform uh, that is an sort of like open marketplace to that in, in that degree, because first of all, I think there are marketplaces that do very well at at that already. Um, and I think the trend is going more towards uh, the verticalization of such marketplaces. 
Um, and it's actually something that we're kind of doing also by choosing particular verticals in, in which we pack the expertise and in which we build out the offering. And we do the same in NFTs. Um, we are live in the music space because we think there's a lot of potential um, in creating additional sort of fan engagement with the audiences of the artists um, that also um, in the future works very well together with um, a music rights security token offering. By verticalization, what do you mean? Do you mean um, the, the issuance, the trading, the settlement of these transactions is all in one entity or something else? Well, um, not necessarily speaking about that just yet, even though I think that's also a very important um, uh, sort of feature to highlight. So by verticalization, I, I typically think about um, the, back to the example of OpenSea. So OpenSea is an NFT marketplace for everything and for everyone. I think that's even the tagline. And in there, you have different verticals uh, that cover everything from gaming to art um, to, to sports, trading card games and the likes. Um, so you have basically like this one huge platform where everything can trade. Uh, verticalization would mean that um, is the next evolution step when the market gets big enough that the niche isn't the entire market, but the niche is a sub-segment of that market. So there are platforms like Artblocks, for example, um, or to a degree also what Coinbase NFT are doing is they take a curated sub-segment of the market and that that is their offering and they tailor their services and user experience to that user. Um, and we are sort of doing a similar thing by choosing specific verticals like art, real estate, music that we offer on our platform, uh, as well as the added value services such as data um, and also the fact that there's you know um, documentation going further than the basic information on the investments and the underlyings themselves. When we're speaking about uh, the infrastructure verticalization, I think that's actually, um, you know, if you look at the value chain of traditional financial markets and compare that to what we've seen so far in crypto markets, um, that one is also not necessarily verticalized. As you saw, when you look at a crypto exchange, um, there is no sort of differentiation between anything that happens pre-trading, trading, post-trading, post settlement, custody, that all happens typically under one roof. Um, whereas we've also relatively early, um, due to also my, my previous experience working for the German Stock Exchange on exactly that topic, and coming from a background where I saw in the market lots of, lots of things where I thought, well, if I told that to our risk management, they would probably not allow us to ship a product. <laughs> um, and, and that was, I, I really wanted to make it happen. So when we, when we were doing these early crypto product developments at German Stock Exchange, we always looked at it from an angle that we could at least remove conflict of interest systematically um, that always do arise, not on a sort of like technology level, of course not, but on an operational level. So you would have to ring fence specific things. And when designing the architecture of 360X, um, those were specifically also the things that from an early stage, we wanted to have uh, a custodian that does not 
where, where we do not have control over the assets. Um, and longer term also that customers have the option to bring their own custodian and judge for themselves the risk that they want to take when custodying their assets um, and use our platform just as a venue for where they make a decision on what they want to buy or what they want to sell rather than making a decision on is it safe to custody my assets there because I already have my own custodian. I did my due diligence there. Um, and just the same with the with the cash side of the business. So we also didn't want to have cash, customer cash, um, sitting under 360X um, because we wanted the customer to choose how and where they could pay from. Um, so we took the angle that we actually did a bank and custodian integration. Um, and amongst themselves, there's also a settlement integration uh, so they could settle the assets um that they could custody the assets and that they could take deposits and us as 360x we're segmented in a way that we are literally just doing you know um primary placements and secondary trading and we're just matching supply and demand mm -hmm. and everything else is just sending an instruction since you brought up the question of of custody and cash let, let's let's talk a bit further about it take take come custody first you've emphasized that actually safe custody is pretty essential to the success of these products you need to reassure investors that their assets are safe you've just explained that you're not actually offering custody directly yourselves it's up to the investors uh, to make their own custody arrangements are those those um two things compatible in other words you make your own custody arrangements uh we'll we'll not take that risk for you but your assets will be safe are those propositions compatible well um i think they are and and for the very reason that um we don't custody custom customers assets we're just matching supply and demand um it is incredibly important that customers know that their assets are safe and i think still the best approach here is to let the customer choose where they want to custody their assets so that they can perform the level of due diligence that they need Currently, um, we have one digital asset custody integration, and we're planning to add more and more as time, time goes on. Um, and we are also uh, considering of implementing self-custody options. So basically, um, the likes of, you know, if a customer wants to just trade using their MetaMask, then they could be trading with their MetaMask. If the customer wants to trade with their um and there's no integration like that but that sort of like the vision if the customer ultimately ends up with a with a uh, bny melon or with a let's say citibank custody account we would also like to make that possible eventually that's not possible today but i think that's a future um, that will eventually come where trading platforms need to support various different custody options um, so, and that is incredibly important because the a very high risk um, for customers' assets uh, happens exactly when a transfer has to, you know, has to has to start has to sort of like commence or end, um, because that is a very popular attack vector for for people to actually try to get hold of assets. So, the more you're sort of forcing people into doing that, the the less operationally secure it will be for, from the view of the customer. Um, from from us as a platform, um, as long as the custodians and the settlement systems amongst each other are compatible, like they are in the traditional world, 
um, to some degree at least. I mean, they're not greatly efficient, but somehow they work. Um, as long as that is a given, then we are happy to send those instructions and let the experts take care of the security of the assets. But I, I, I'm, you know, if I was a, a a user of 360X, one of the things that would appeal to me was that this is Deutsche Börse, Deutsche Börse owns Clearstream. You know, I would feel more secure, more um, convinced that 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 my assets would be safe if I was actually working directly with with Deutsche Börse with Clearstream to do the settlement, which I think you do. You just explained you do do, but also the custody as well. Are you finding potential users saying to you, "Well, why can't you give us a custody service as well?" Definitely. Um, I mean, once uh, once that is possible and once the service offering is live, um, we definitely do want to offer custody with our, our, our partners and our backers. Uh, just like when, you know, when somebody wants to custody with Clearstream and we have an integration with Clearstream, that's exactly precisely what we want to offer. Mm-hmm. So um, that's precisely the direction that we want to go. Okay. Understood. Uh, on the cash side, uh, how do the how do the investors going to get their their money onto their their fiat currency onto the platform, so yeah. they can, they can buy it and and get it off again, of course. <laughs> Apologies. So, um, the um, the deposits. So, what we as a platform require is that whenever a trade is about to happen, that the integrated bank custodian has a pre funding. So we make sure that before um, a user can trade, that there's sufficient euro um, fiat currency supply on the platform, uh, as well as tokens on the other side. Um, so what what customers typically do is they deposit money with a supported bank, um, then um, they'll enter a trade, and then that will be settled after they found a match between the bank and the custodian. And then they can also withdraw that from our platform. So the, the first bank and the first custodian that we've integrated with, that one is actually fully integrated. So that is like um, almost like an embedded finance pro- um, sort of mm-hmm. uh, product, where as a user, you do not have any barrier towards using that bank or custodian. You can fully steer that from the 360X platform user front end. So um when you want to do withdrawal just like that, you can also just do a withdrawal back to your reference account and the money will go back to your own bank if you wish so. Or you could leave it with the integrated bank, which is your account, um, and could just use it for the next trade. Mm-hmm. I see. So the integrated bank just makes sure your trading activity is more efficient, but you can use your own bank if you wish to. Yeah. Okay. So so for the time being, um, for the time being, there's one integrated bank. Uh, but for the deposits, obviously, um, we want to make it as easy as possible for the users to trade. So you can just wire in money from your own bank account into the integrated bank. You can make your offer, trade, and so on and so forth, and withdraw it back to your own bank. Um, and as we're growing and as things do evolve in the infrastructure space, in the digital asset space, we will integrate more and more custodians, more and more banks, uh, and more and more payment methods. So that is so that that experience becomes as smooth as possible, and as um, you know, yeah, as comfortable as possible for all of the users. Um, and we've also decided to start with paying tokens against euro specifically or fiat currencies, because we do think that most of the customers today actually have um, 
have had a very troublesome experience with buying cryptocurrencies. Um, and that that is definitely a barrier in some countries. So our goal for the start was definitely to really make that as uh, make the the blockchain or the crypto aspects of the technology appear in the background and um, make that feel as if they are using a, a different product. But if they want to, they can optionally also use it as if it was a crypto native product. So um, we were trying to make it the other way around because the crypto space has a tendency of still feeling very cumbersome when it comes to the user experience and quite complex to understand for a lot of customers that are in fact just trying to get alternative asset exposure when they're using our platform. On that um, pre-funding point you made a few minutes ago at the settlement stage, uh, has that tempted you or the banks you're working with to get involved in credit if somebody doesn't have the wherewithal for the cash leg? Um, not yet. So I think credit is something, um, if, if, even if you're looking in, into the crypto space, something that tends to be quite problematic. Um, mm, indeed. Yeah, it tends to be quite problematic. So we've stayed away from it for the time being. Um, there's just too many examples in crypto platforms, um, NFT platforms and the likes where this has turned into fraudulent behavior or con conflicts of interest. Um, so this is a topic to tackle um, at, a, at, a, at a different point in time uh, separately and then focus on that if there is significant demand for that. We've talked a little bit about the services you, you do provide, like settlement, the services you don't provide, like custody. If, if I said to you, what are the services you provide and what are the services you do not provide, what would be in each of those categories, just to get an idea of the complete portfolio of things you're offering and not offering? Yeah, sure. So um, within the group, uh, we try to be the value chain up until the point where an asset becomes tradable, um, including the matching. Uh, this means if you are an asset owner, and you're looking to, for example, um, get funding now to, uh, to, to use it to, you know, do something in your business, um, which you would otherwise not be able to get from a bank or anything, um, or you want to do fan engagement, um, will help you put your asset into a space um, that is properly quality checked, that is ready for um, becoming a financial instrument if you're going the security token route. Um, we are also creating with um, international law firms the legal structuring for you. So um, that is very much similar to like a securities prospectus. Um, so we're also helping you create that as an issuer. We're also then tokenizing it. We're using public Ethereum, um, which I think is possibly the best use case given the infrastructure restrictions and the possibilities and the development community and, 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 uh, and also sort of like the status of audited smart contract templates. So we're doing all that. In short, um, you have an asset. We take it to the point where it can be tokenized. Um, and then that's typically what our domain experts are doing. So we've got 12 by 12, um, we've got tech tracks, uh, and we've got 360X art doing that for the respective domains. Um, they'll know about your asset. They know about your market. They know what to look into. 
Um, and they're also sort of like looking whether your asset or you as an issuer would be eligible for doing that, being an issuer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the services we're providing within the group. And then the regulated services start kicking in. Um, so 360X as a platform has licenses for placement. Um, so this would be a primary issuance of a financial instrument. Um, we also have a license for investment brokerage. So that means we can match demand and supply. Um, in easy words, this would mean you now have an asset that is tokenized. Um, and we sort of place that on the platform. So we find investors um, or you as an as uh, asset issuer also have um, particular mm -hmm. investors that you would want to place this instrument amongst. Um, and we help you do that. Um, we'll help you send the settlement instructions. We'll help you um, get the whole transaction done. So after everybody has pre-funded, the token is with the custodian. We'll set the settlement instructions. We make sure that everybody's pre-funded. We make sure that the whole deal is, get is getting settled. And that is happening surprisingly quickly um, if you compare that with traditional financial infrastructure in just a few seconds. Um, so that's the services that we're doing. Um, and going beyond that, that's not what we are sort of like um, doing ourselves, but that's what we have the integration for. Um, we're also making sure that those uh, tokens sit with the right custodian, that the, uh, that the custodian knows about the audited smart contract template. They know about what's the, the token terms, as we call it, the prospectus-like document. Um, and we make sure the asset is properly advertised on the platform. Um, and we can also take secondary trades because that's actually what we're trying to get into um, because there's no secondary market just yet for these assets. Um, there's been you know, a dedicate, dedicated secondary market for those asset classes. Um, so yeah, so for, for asset owners, we're help, helping them get to the point where they can tokenize. We can we help them sell it. We help them get all the funds for investors. We help them get exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So you you um you you've got these experts who can help potential users of the service decide whether something is tokenizable, for want of a better word. You can help them uh, write the prospectus for that. You can help them actually mint those tokens, and you can help them um, uh, uh, through your two licenses uh, place those with investors, broke them. Uh, to those investors, I suppose, as well. And then you, you can make sure they get into safe custody. Now, you raised the question of secondary market trading, uh, which is obviously, you know, takes time to, to build up. You're operating mainly in the primary market right now. What, what thoughts have you had about how you can encourage secondary market trading? So ultimately, and also with the background that, we've had, that the founder team has, um, so we have a combination of um, domain experts among the founder, founder teams. And um, the other ones coming from basically 360T, which is like one of the biggest FX uh, currency exchanges. Um, myself coming from German stock exchange, having worked in crypto um, for, for quite some time. Um, so second, building a secondary market for that is where we want to get to. Um, and, uh, and specifically because we think that these markets, the alternative asset markets are not... I mean, obviously, the physical markets are not liquid at all. I mean, in art pieces, we're looking at, you know, between, on average, probably like seven to 25 years for, for one secondary trade. 
of one single individual piece. So um, if we look at the proprietary data that we've collected um, from, from ourselves and uh, from, from competitor platforms, um, we'd be looking at already with no dedicated secondary market and with no particularly advanced functionality um, and transparency measures uh, for secondary market to become more liquid, uh, we can already see that for the high, highly, you know, for the high quality pieces, that there's typically a turnaround of like, you know, between 25 and 100 percent um, of the assets value within one year. Um, which is quite astonishing if you compare it in relation to the underlying physical art market or to the to the underlying collectible markets. Uh, so that's already quite an improvement in itself. But what can you do to sort of like make secondary market liquidity like happen? Uh, that's a I think that's almost a philosophical question because I think secondary market liquidity is something that you know a lot of factors will have to come together. Um, but surely some some of the factors that uh, are quantitative can be measured or you know can be developed in terms of functionality is the fact that um, one of the few things that you need on a marketplace is someone who can um, you know make a market, right? So someone who tells you a price when there's no organic price or where there's few organic prices and someone who um, takes risk from the market because they know, um, that there is a market price somewhere there and they could find the opposite. When they're buying, they would find a seller. When they're selling, they would find a buyer. Um, so you need a market maker. And um, while it's still quite early for market makers, especially in these asset classes, um, there's a few things that a market maker would need. Um, and one of the main things is obviously they need the functionality. So they need trading mechanisms that make sense in terms of that trading. Um, and they would also need data, whether that one is quantitative or qualitative, they would need data. So what we're seeing in the market right now is that typically you would have specialists, um, specialists that might sit in positions where they have particular data or where they know very much about a market, uh, such as art or a sub-segment of that market, because actually I think the art market is many, 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 many different small markets, um, just like equities as well. You would have someone that you know is willing to give you a price floor and the price ceiling um, at which they want to buy a particular token. And so I think these are like the first things um, that the, the first actors that might be, you know, bring you the first fizzle of liquidity on the market. Um, and um and from there, you can potentially build some more transparency to create opportunity in the market. So I think I think one thing is there needs to be, um, obviously, people wanting to buy and sell. Um, it needs to be the, the right amount of data and transparency visibility um, for people to you know, create opportunity from. Um, that opportunity in alternative assets could potentially also come from other events, um, which is uh, in, in the art market, whether they're displayed in a top tier museum or um, that's typically announced very, very, very far in advance, um, or whether there, you know, there's something, you know, happening like um, um, a passing of an artist or something like this. So 
something that creates price action, something that creates demand, something that creates people to, you know, buy or sell. Um, and that's the the things that, you know, that we, that we intend on building uh, apart from the functionality, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, one of the things that obviously has to be there first is you need uh, quite a portfolio of assets because these things start becoming fun for traders when there's a lot of different things to look at at the same time, not just a few. Um, And for that, the good thing is we're seeing a lot of platforms actually that we do think not necessarily of as competitors, but as potentially even uh, corporations Um, because there's a lot of assets being tokenized or securitized or, you know, sold somewhere in, in fractions on multiple different marketplaces um, that we think might be interesting to be the secondary market for. Um, and, and precisely because, because liquidity doesn't happen in millions of fractionalized places, but it tends to gravitate towards specific centers. So, uh, and this is something that we've seen from all kinds of markets in the past you would typically have a center of liquidity develop very naturally uh, for secondary markets. Uh, And we're hoping to become that one as well. And for that, we are also open as long as the objects also fulfill the quality standards that we expect from these assets. Now, one of the things that would help drive liquidity in secondary markets obviously is a steady flow of, of reliable data, most obviously price data there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem there once you've got the secondary market you have the, the price data but is there other data which perhaps your domain experts can bring maybe they know a lot about what's going on in the real estate or art or musical markets that they can bring to help uh, bring a steady flow of deals if you like issuers and a steady flow of investors to the marketplace simply because they know what they're talking about in their markets and can you formalize that kind of tacit knowledge these experts will have into a data stream which could help to attract both issuers and investors? Is there a data component to your business? Yeah, so definitely there is um, uh, for some assets more than for others. So for for real estate and for music, for example, um, these can be very, very data driven. Um, So our domain experts will also um, specifically for the real estate part, there are solutions whereby, you know, they're taking... Um, as as good as it gets, the valuations from the market, um, from you know basically modern valuations tools for the real estate market to sort of like update the valuation on an ongoing level without sending a person there and revaluing it all the time, providing uh, not only quantitative data in such a way, but also qualitative data on the underlying assets, um, ranging from you know. Um, you know, just everything that describes a real estate. So like, what's the tier of where it's at? What's the situation? What's the city? What's um, what's the district? Uh, what's the income? And all of these uh, these data points, um, the, 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 the domain experts, they will have them and they will offer that to the investors as well. For music, it's very similar. So um, we, um, we do see music as something that's potentially being very much uh, quantitative because if you're looking at um, uh, sort of like royalty streams that's coming from from streaming platforms that can potentially be like tracked in real time how many monthly listeners how many uh, uh, how many monthly streams 
uh, what's the historical data performance, um, uh, what's the historical streaming performance, what's the historical financial performance um, that you can deduce from whether um, an investment into a royalty right is a good investment to have. And depending on um, the sort of exposure that you, uh, you know, looking to get into, we have assets that have been like very steady over the past few years. So the um, the music um, the, the the royalty right on the music author rights that we just sold to the investors was a very well known German um, film music artist, um, and his income stream was incredibly steady. Um, there was very little volatility. Uh, he's obviously not one of those people like on TikTok selling all kinds of things and being like very like um, you know uh, one one hit wonder kind of thing but it was very predictable. Um, and that makes the token as a financial instrument, uh, you know, not very volatile. It's very, very steady. But then, um, as I already mentioned, the TikTok one hit wonders, these are very volatile investments with a lot of risk potentially. Um, so in itself, they make for a completely different uh, exposure in your portfolio and a lot of different factors to figure in and a, a very different data demand. So, um, um, yeah, there, there will be lots of data points that investors will need in order to make that decision. And our domain experts are looking to deliver that to them. Mm -hmm. Couldn't help wondering if that uh, very well-known German film rights uh, uh, composer you mentioned was Hans Zimmer, but um, I'm sure you don't want to tell me. Hans uh, Wagner, also a Hans, but not not that. All right, okay, different Hans. one then. Yeah, different Hans. Um, yeah, we're all very familiar with Hans Zimmer uh, in the yeah. Anglo-Saxon world. Um, now, the the um, the domain experts, which you've referred to a number of times, and you've you've described the type of things they do. Do they also help you find issuers and investors, or is that work you have to do yourselves? Um, to to a degree, um, obviously, they are the funnels that we have for the issuers um, at the moment. Uh, for a very practical reason, and that's because they are sort of quality checking the underlying. Um, so this is, um, by the way, also we're working with independent um, sort of people doing the valuation, um, doing the provenance checks, uh, certificates of um, authenticity, and 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 the likes of that. So they are tying they are tying the piece together, um, and with that, they're also. Um, yeah, they're, they're helping us get the issuers on the platform. And the issuers them, themselves, they might have investors that they already know that they're speaking with and they want to involve in the deal. Um, because there are actually quite some people privately doing what we are trying to do openly on the platform, um, where, you know, some galleries potentially have some, you know, club deals where they buy art and, you know, get a few investors in and then it's just not... It's fractionalized to some point, but there's no secondary market and it's also not openly traded, um, but it still exists. So these issuers typically tend to know some investors that be interested into it, into that. And then as 360X, we also um, have an investor pool um, and we're always looking to get more investors interested in it that we can place the instrument then. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, the answer is yes, they're helping us get that. And at some level, it's it's fairly obvious what the issuers are going to get out of this, which is that you know I've got this painting hanging on my wall. It's not really earning for me. Uh, if I if I tokenize it, I can uh, start to use it as collateral for loans. I can 
actually put a, a capital value on it, you know, raise some some sell future future flows, I suppose, in the case of music in particular. So some of the benefits to issuers are you know are, are clear. But is there a is there a pattern to what issuers are telling you makes doing this attractive to them? Is is that I can use this collateral more important than raising money against future flows, or is it always entirely bespoke to the to the issuer why they want to do this? Or is there a pattern? Um, it tends to be mostly that um, they they are interested in sort of like selling a part of the asset. Um, so getting basically cash now for a future, for a potential, for what would have been a future income for them. Um, but there is also other ones that tend to be a little bit less direct. So um, from the NFT world, we know something as um, a creator fees. So there was a hot topic in the NFT space, actually, because some, when, when the NFT markets were starting to come down a little bit just a few months back, uh, a few platforms actually made creator fees optional. And creator fees um, did incentivize the creators of the assets um, with, every, with, a, with a percentage revenue share of every single secondary trade. So when you're looking into the art market um, or into music and real estate, actually, the creators, the developers don't necessarily get anything from any secondary trade. So you sell something early on in your career for a few pounds and then uh, you take off and then you get nothing from it, um, except for maybe the publicity, which would help you implicitly in other scenarios. But with NFTs, you create something and it takes off and you get a lot of money for it because you're always... Um, uh, incentivized. So these tokens can also create a scenario in which this can happen for the, um, for these instruments, um, where whereby you are um, potentially um, incentivized by selling. A, um, that's uh, that's one potential um, legal structure that can be offered in in the art market, for example, um, where you get that on every secondary trade you get um, a percentage that you set. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also very interesting for especially these creative markets. Um, and that's something that we're looking to bring into the market to also, yeah, sort of like, might, it, might, it might sound a little bit cheesy coming on a future of finance talk, but at the end of the day, if you want those markets to grow, you also have to support those who make you know, create it. So, uh, and one way of supporting them is, you know, incentivizing them. Mm -hmm. um, and for the investors, um, on the other hand, um, an investor has um, a very straightforward um, or two very straightforward sort of like motives to do it. One is um, to sort of diversify their portfolio. The very traditional thing, you need to diversify your portfolio. Uh, and art, real estate and alternatives, music rights do do that. So, um, But they all do it differently. So with art, you have something that's been historically performing very well, even throughout times of war. Um, there's uh, sufficient data on that. So blue, blue chip art has been performing very well um, when other asset classes haven't. Um, and then you have music rights, which perform, you know, in has a very sort of like specific exposure that you're buying into. And even within the music market, that exposure can vary widely depending on your risk appetite, as I outlined between the very steady film composer, uh, musician, and then the TikTok one-hit wonder. 
they have very, very different um, profiles of, um, you know, why you would diversify your portfolio. So that's the one theme. And then the second theme is um, specifically with art and music and other alternative assets. There's also an emotional component to it where you might do an investment because you're a fan, um, because you feel like by doing that, you are supporting your artist. And by, by doing that, you might get something out of it that you see as utility. Uh, and that can be very well combined with uh, assets in the art and music space. And does that explain anything about the balance you have between retail and institutional investors? You've explained on the one hand, people diversify, get exposure to alternative asset classes. On the other hand, they want to have this emotional connection with the asset they're investing in because they're a music fan, for example. Yeah. Is that, so, is that, so, so what is the balance between retail and, and institutional in your business on the investor side? So right now we are um, serving professional customers. So you'd have the MIFID definition of a professional customer um, that we're catering to. Um, that's the first step. So that's where we're starting. Um, that's where what we have done in the past. Um, and we do want to extend to retail, but currently we don't have any retail customers. Um, I think the concept of selling these assets to retail is incredibly interesting. Um, and it makes a lot of sense, specifically when combining with utility tokens. Um, and that's something that uh, we do see as particularly interesting when we're looking at, for example, tokenizing actual music catalogs in the future and selling that to the fans. Mm -hmm. uh, because that would create entirely new avenues for, for fans to engage with the artists. And potentially also um, making for some, if you if you think really big and really far, for some really interesting changes in that particular market in terms of the structure. Um, and that's really where we're trying to get to. And I guess uh, you'll experience something similar in the sports markets as well, won't you, where there is that intense uh, emotional connection. Yeah. Do you have to, um, well, tell me, is the sports market one you're looking at long term? So sports market is something that we've actually looked at in the past, um, but we found it to be a very peculiar market. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I bet, um, yeah. yeah, so uh, very interesting for a lot of reasons, um, but a little we're, we're still uh, we're still leaning towards the more like verifiable and a sort of like conservative um, uh, alternative assets for the time being. Um, we're still monitoring uh, sports and quite a lot of, lot of other markets, um, but yeah, it's 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 a little bit far away. No matter which angle you're looking from, uh, you find that the market structure is really quite, um, you know, uh, how to say it. You have opaque. <laughs> very, it's it's opaque from from one from one perspective, but it's also very winner takes it all. So you have only so many people in that opaque structure that make the calls that you have to win. Um, and that one is uh, quite interesting for any open market um, because you would tend to typically want to have a market that, um, you know, where you can start at, at some low traction, validate the product, validate it, there's a need for the customer. Um, whereas, you know, especially when you're going into security tokens and sports, that makes it a little bit difficult. If you're doing something in utility tokens and NFTs, you're more you're more talking on like a marketing like sort of like sponsorship side of the of the clubs that you're speaking with. 
which is potentially a little bit easier. And we've seen a few platforms do that. So, and these projects have been more or less successful, but typically they tend to be a bit more successful and there's quite a lot of demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking you could tokenize um, ticket sales to football matches or something, but I, I guess that, that business, it's not always a profitable business, is it? So there's that challenge as well. Now, just talking of being conservative, um, do you have to or do you provide a service in which you're vetting the investors for anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism, sanction screening? And maybe you have to, to vet the issuers as well. Do you provide that service or do you rely on third parties? We obviously we obviously have to do that. So um, we do have to do due diligence. Um, we, I mean, we are a regulated financial um, company uh, and so is our partner bank and um, the custodian. So these are, you know, regulated under AMLD, so they have to do all of the different checks. Um, all customers are properly KYC'd or business KYC'd, um, and among that is obviously all the typical anti-money laundering AFC kind of checks that you have to do, and that's what we're running. So um, that is actually to the degree where, you know, if you were to do a business bank account opening in Germany, that's sort of like what our account opening looks like if you're an entity. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, and same same as for the issuers. Right. So you do both. And you're providing that directly. You're not relying on third parties to do that. With our partner bank. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, on the regulatory side, you, you've explained you've obtained these regulatory licenses from the BAFIN uh, to do the placement and to do the brokerage. I wonder to what extent is uh, legal and regulatory uncertainty uh, a constraint on the rapid growth of the business, both in Germany and outside Germany? And I'm thinking here of things like those um, creator royalties you were referring to earlier. You know, it's important to if you if you somebody creates a, a token entitling them to a share of future uh, revenues that they can be under law certain that they own that and if they sell it can be certain that uh, that the transfer was was settled finally and that they can lay claim to those underlying uh, revenue or cash flows as well I mean, it's a broad question, but is legal and regulatory uncertainty still a still a constraint on on the growth of the business? I would say, generally, yes, um, because while crypto is starting to sort of be understood, and um, the infrastructure is sort of coming in for security tokens, that's not necessarily the case. So. In Germany, in particular, we have quite some interesting new frameworks that haven't been adopted anywhere else just yet. So these are electronic securities. There's particular roles in the market, such as like the registry, which we also know from sort of traditional markets that keep specific data so that tokens can move around um, and payments that result from a token can still be uh, facilitated in a way that is compliant. Um, um, Because particularly when you're when you're just relying on a completely decentralized framework, um, which I think in a decentralized system, it's just a little bit di- more difficult uh, to solve. And um, especially when we're talking about identities, sanction lists and the likes, sure, surely there will be solutions at some point, but there are none uh, broadly adopted today. So um, roles like the electronic securities registry um, are actually quite important to understand. 
Um, but sadly, these only kind of exist within Germany at the moment. Uh, and you have some, some different functions, but coming to a relatively similar level of, um, you know, making sense in Switzerland and in Liechtenstein as well. So there are some jurisdictions out of which you can do this um, that makes sense for security tokens. Um, but it's not just on the security token level side, but it's also on other infrastructure. So uh, in Europe, we have very fragmented regulations, even when you're looking at custody. So in Germany, uh, custody is now uh, a regulated, um, you know, sort of like regulated thing to do, a regulated service. So for that, you have to get a license. Um, otherwise, you can't offer that service. So our custodian is a regulated custodian, um, the one that we work with. Um, but the second you start looking into France or into Spain or into the UK, the picture looks completely different. Um, and because we're talking about something that is borderline service or technology here, um, that means that potentially specific flows in the product have to be localized based on um, the regulatory regime that you're working with. Uh, so that's on a product level. Um, and that makes things um, that makes things definitely a bit more complicated. But that being said, um, we do see that, you know, due to um, things happening in the crypto market, people under, start st understanding the infrastructure, start understanding the cybersecurity risks, operational risks that go along with it. Um, and they start getting an understanding of what needs to happen in order for, for a healthy infrastructure to, um, uh, to sort of like evolve, whether that is on the centralized financial institution side, where you just have to basically look at how existing financial institutes have sort of like segregated their particular service offerings uh, to make something that's semi-healthy. Um, and then uh, if you're talking about the centralized protocol level, um, I think that's just something where um, I think the future is in for a lot of these different assets, but the compliance and the risk management um, uh, things are still missing a little bit. And further development has to happen there. So depending on which direction you want to develop into, there's specific focal, focal points that you have to pay attention to. And for both of them, regulation is quite important. Um, but I think that's just how it is in a market as young as the one that we're looking into. Just so I'm clear what you what you said there about that all important point about ownership and, and transfer, you're not content to rely on the blockchain ledger to decide who owns what and who's bought and sold what. You're actually maintaining a old fashioned, if you like, register uh, under German law to make sure that those uh, the, the ownership is recorded and that transfers are uh, recorded and indeed final. Yes. That, my understanding is correct, is it? That is correct. These are securities. Um, there are mechanisms that work like securities. Um, and while you could find ways of doing it, there's, again, a lot of identity, KYC, KYT, compliance things that you'll, you'll, you, you will definitely run into. Uh, and if you choose to ignore them, that's not a good thing. So for the time being, yes, uh, we are... Um, sort of keeping keeping everything within KYC boundaries. Um, otherwise, it would be difficult to justify from a regulatory yeah. point of view. Yeah, well, it's good to understand that. And I suspect that there are 
uh, lots of uh, businesses in the blockchain space which are reaching very similar conclusions to that. Um, Fabian, one last question for you. Um, I'm very interested. We've talked a lot about tokens um, in, in this conversation, but you describe yourself publicly being very um, parsimonious in the use of the word token. You describe yourselves as an alternative asset marketplace. At one level, that's very obvious. Why you do, you know, you're talking about real estate and and art and music, but you you seem to, as I say, not want to be char- characterized or pigeonholed as a as a tokenized asset marketplace. Is there a, is there a reason for that, or is it just a matter of language which you you prefer to use? Uh, there is a very specific reason. And the reason is the question, what is a token? If you ask 10 people, they will have 20 or maybe 30 different answers. Um, So that's the reason why we tend to sort of like describe ourselves the way it is, because what you're buying is an alternative asset. It happens to be using a specific technology. Um, And it happens that this could also be described as a token. Um, But from the user's point of view, um, sort of like my philosophy is that I don't want to sell them the technology, right? I want to sell them that there is a good asset that they can get exposed to. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, something that I finally, uh, you know, noticed over the past few years working in this crypto industry is that people tend to have very complex explanations about what they're doing. Um, very complex ones. They're like some financial, uh, like decentralized uh, automated market maker or something. So, I mean, that's an, for, for anyone who's in crypto by now, this is a very, very easy sort of like um, thing to understand. But for en- everyone else, uh, it would be a place where you can, you know, transfer, you know, where you can, where you can sell your token you know, where you can sell your asset. So um, that's sort of like the philosophy on why we're trying not to use the word token. Fabian Sham, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Dominic. It was a pleasure to be on here. Thank you so much. <laughs>